Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hey. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. You know, I felt like, uh, and I don't know if we should put time references into the podcast or not, but I've been back in the States for almost a week. And yesterday was the first day I felt okay. Yeah. The jet lag has we had a hideous, hideous time coming back. Mm, yeah. The airports are broken and all that sort of stuff. But I've been getting some perspective and appreciating the trip to Cornwall uh, more and more. Um, well, I, I had to, I got, I, you know, you and I have talked about it several times since I've been back. But there's something I didn't tell you. When we got to London at the end of our trip, uh, Sherry and I have have as they say done london three times before so we didn't we didn't have any need to do their london kind of things and go to all the places that people go so we just wandered around our hotel was right across the street from saint paul's cathedral where the choir was going to be in residence uh-huh. and um you know that is just one of the cathedrals that was designed partially by christopher wren Mm-hmm. Uh, the the famous architect and uh, Christopher Wren did a number of churches in London and other places and so on the first day that we were in London and we were just walking the street to see what was going on we walked by this little church that had mm-hmm. on the outside St. Martin's of, hmm, I didn't get the last name I'll have to go back and get it. I took a photograph of it a church designed by Christopher Wren. There are several St. Martins in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one near Buckingham Palace called St. Martins of the Field that the musical group has taken their name from. Hmm. And so there's this little church. Just, I mean, it was it's just almost a storefront looking thing. So I said, let's go in. So we went in and it was old. It was dilapidated not really uh it was in use uh and this very kindly portly gentleman came up and said we're about to begin mass would you like to stay and i said of course and so we stayed we were probably about one of a dozen people at noon in london attending mass uh in this church that was overlooked by Mm. almost everybody nobody was there i mean you know they it was just it was interesting and uh to attend the catholic mass mm-hmm. and i learned something in that mass what's that god is left-handed hmm say more <laughs> is well, it signature all backwards does it look like it uh, no 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 it, it, it's it's uh, it, it gets into exactly what you and i were talking about yesterday on the phone mm-hmm. um this mass was not in Latin, it was in English, and mm-hmm. the creed that they use in the mass is the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. not the Apostles' Creed, and the Nicene Creed clearly states that 
Jesus was uh, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. I don't think that's exactly the phrase that they used in the Nicene Creed. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on <laughs> the right hand of God. Uh-huh. Now, if Jesus is sitting on the on. right hand of God, yeah. God has got to be lifted. Yeah. He's and I started with this. Maybe he's a switch hitter. Maybe God is a switch I hitter. I started snorting during this <laughs> creed, and I got a good ribbing from my beautiful bride yeah by ribbing i mean jabbed into ribs that's exactly right um but it was it, i love i love the liturgy i love the yeah. the smells and bells and the priest is doing it by himself mm-hmm. he didn't have anybody really to help him and mm. it was just an interesting experience yeah yeah you know it's it's funny i mean i have a more um nuanced relationship to liturgy than I did 20 years ago. I'm sure 20 years from now, I'll have an even more nuanced relationship with it. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll have a more literal relationship with it. I don't know. But um, I, I find myself just if I kind of think about the different stages of spiritual development in my own life, um, just how I have gone through the mental hoops of interpreting and reinterpreting um, liturgy, uh, hymns, prayers, you know, uh, trying sometimes to quiet my mind to not ask now, what else could this mean? Or what did they mean by, (laughs) um, is an interesting experience. I wonder if I'll arrive at a time where I can just participate in the ritual without having to jump through the hoops of, of reinterpretation. What is that like for you when you are, participating in liturgy or is it just so kind of fluid in your bones that it's not well um it's you know again people who are listening to this don't have the backstory that you and i talk a lot Mm -hmm. offline but um i as you know i talked about i started rereading edward editor's book ego and archetype and i also in tandem with that uh reading a lot of alan watch material Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm And um, by inference, Edinger says that the spiritual practice life is important. And by very explicitly, Alan Watts says that. Alan Watts represents the Eastern mindset. And probably he's the guy who more or less single-handedly introduced Zen Buddhism into America a long time ago, back in the 50s and 60s. And Alan Watts says that one of the things that's flawed about American culture is uh, is that we don't have space for ritualized spiritual practice in our daily life. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine how that appealed to me to hear. I have never heard he anyone said, if say you that. Go, if you go into a house in India, in China, in Japan, in every house, there is a place dedicated to religious ritual, to mm-hmm. a shrine, to ancestor worship, whatever it is, but it's at least there. And uh, so that it's a more a part of their life. Um, I appreciate the inheritance of ritual from our Jewish ancestors. The Jews had a genius for um, religious liturgy and ritual. And the early Christian movements appropriated or stole mm-hmm. almost all of that idea from Judaism. And so when I enter into a Christian ritual, 
it's all poetic and metaphorical to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, I don't, yeah. I, I, I do not have the, the stumbling blocks that a lot of people have. Oh, I can't believe the creed. I don't see it say the creed and all that. Mm-hmm. And I want to say to people that, you know, the people who wrote the creeds in the Christian tradition never believed them literally as we think of believing something literally. Right. They were poetic. Right. And they right. were written in, in terms of their worldview, which, believe it or not, they didn't have the James Allen telescope. Uh-huh. Oh. James, the James Webb telescope. Yeah. James Webb, exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, uh, they just live in a world that they lived in and they, they wrote about it and wrote out of it. Yeah. Well, two things came up for me as you were saying all of that. Number one is um, the you know, the images coming out of the James Webb Space Telescope are just so phenomenal and so humbling and so beautiful. You know, it's kind of like when you see a picture of the Grand Canyon and you kind of go, whoa, my gosh. But when you, and you think when you get to the Grand Canyon, maybe it won't be so completely awe-inspiring because you've seen so many pictures of it. But then when you get to the Grand Canyon, it's absolutely as awe-inspiring as you thought it or as you hoped it was. Um, you know, and, and so, but with the James Webb telescope, it's just so hard that we can't even like imagine ourselves there because we can't travel 4 billion light years away, (laughs) you know, but these, these photos coming out of it, I don't know if they answer more questions or bring up more questions, but what they do is deepen for me this sense of how much we don't know and this just profound sense of mystery. Mm -hmm. And, and I think as you're saying, when we can read things poetically and metaphorically, that same profound sense of mystery opens up. Right. And it's funny when I, um, have been in situations where let's say uh, a couple of times I've been to a Spanish language church um, or a bilingual. When I, or I've been to many um, Jewish Passovers. Uh, I had a great friend growing up. She's still my friend who I would do the high holidays with her family. And so I would say a lot of prayers in Hebrew or when I say prayers in Spanish, somehow, that feels like a connection to poetry more to me because I don't understand it. In Spanish, I understand it. But when I can sing, say, or repeat something in another language, it's like I can drop into that mystery a little more. Right. And, right. and, I, and so that's sort of, you know, we were talking about retranslating. Well, and, and, yeah. we're going, I hope we're going to stay on track of what we're talking about, about how I've changed since I first read Edward Edward's ego and archetype but speaking of the James Webb telescope uh, I hope and and I'm tempted to use the word prayer I pray Mm -hmm. my my fervent wish is that people who see these images would have a religious conversion have Mm -hmm. a spiritual conversion about our planet right um we watched the other night the latest David Attenborough documentary on the earth. Mm. David Attenborough, when I watched it, it's on Netflix. It's available just to Google, to go to Netflix and enter his name and the most recent thing he's done on the earth. David Attenborough is 95 years old. 
And this is his testimony to his work, his lifelong work mm. as a photographer and anthropologist. Mm. And when he said, this is my testimony, and he said, I'm 95, I went, yes. <laughs> I got 10 more years. <laughs> I'm going to keep going, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's so smart and he's so passionately concerned about the planet. And so he talks about the earth and, and how the earth has changed during his time. And I, I, he said in the last 10 minutes of the presentation, he talked about these are the things that we could do mm -hmm. to change the direction our planet is inevitably heading right this minute. And we need to do this and this and this. And, this. and, and, and I think, God, we are so hard to convert. We are. I know uh, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday about Alex Jones. And mm -hmm. Alex Jones, the liar about the Sandy Hook thing. And he's had this 42, 44 million dollar fine. And I said, Do you think that will make Alex Jones any different? And this guy said, No. Mm -hmm. And I said, Joe, you know, we've got to have some conversion. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll take to the fields like John Wesley and start. That's right. With your with your staff and your tablet. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I, and you know, just talk. Let's talk about change a little bit. Um, you know, we're both um, steeped in the tradition of believing in evolution, and that change is constant, and that evolutionary consciousness is part of the gospel story, even. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear you talk about, so you've been reading Ego and Archetype, which I have and have not read fully. I've dab, dab, dabbled into it when I needed to, a reference, but I've read The Christian Archetype, which is by the same author, Edward Edinger, which is the Jungian look at the life of Christ. And you know, I'd love to hear you say, what are some of the ways that reading that book now that you note, oh, this has changed for me. My understanding of this has changed. My experience of this mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the ways that I would answer that is that I don't believe in evolution. I used to. What I am aware of is that I am part of evolution. Mm. And that ah. would just, mm -hmm. That's a shift for me. That evolution is nothing for me to believe in. It's something for me to be aware that I am a participant in and then can I um, bring that awareness into consciousness and participate in evolution in a way that benefits my species and the other sentient creatures on the planet and the planet itself. So that's one of the ways that I, I have changed. Um, I, I do not even know now, Holly, what prompted me to start rereading this book. I read it in, in uh, 1996 when I started um, in-depth union training. That's when I read it, read it. It's not an easy read. I don't want to say, I, I wish everybody would attempt to read it because I think it's so critically important for the Western mindset to read. But um, I don't I, I think that one of the ways that I, I, I have, have changed is in, 
embracing a more atheistic position, which we were talking about on the phone the other day, I feel much more um, inclusive about um, other myths. Mm -hmm. I think there is that, that any hint of uh, superiority or exclusiveness that I have ever had toward the Christian myth has is absolutely gone. Mm -hmm. I would mm -hmm. I still am interested in reinterpreting that myth for people mm -hmm. so that they can experience more freedom mm -hmm. from the strictures of a more literal interpretation. Um I was thinking yesterday, and I've I've said this before, I think you and I have talked about this in class together. Uh, when Harry Emerson Fostick wrote his sermon on Shall the Fundamentalist Win in 1919, the progressives were literal interpreting people. They mm -hmm. just did a different dance about literalism right. than the fundamentalists did. That's and now right. uh, I don't see virtually any of the Jesus narrative as literal. Yeah. It's all metaphorical. Yeah. I would say that, you know, and maybe it's expressed in a different way because of um, the difference in our developmental stage, but I would say, and maybe you've accelerated my developmental stage, I don't know, just by allowing for that mystery to exist in a setting where, um, where tradition happens. So in a church setting, you've been able to allow for this grand question to just permeate your teaching and, and the space. Mm -hmm. And, and it's funny because it almost feels like when, when I was young and I first got exposed to kind of Christianity in a, in a more intense and hardcore way, if you will, um, it terrified me. And I remember being asked to, accept Jesus as my savior at a Baptist camp and crying. And, and the thought in my mind was, but what if it's wrong? Or what if it's not the only way said the counterphobic six who at the time didn't know she was, counterphobic six. Mm -hmm. but, but the, those questions were very alive in me as a young kid. And I've heard you say that even as a young kid, you had these sort of, but what if, you know, mm -hmm. And I didn't have the context for a very long time of what um, a pluralistic understanding of reality could look like. Cause I grew up in a quite homogenous society as most of us do. And it, it, it just is um, everything I've read since being a child has confirmed for me that there is more than one way all wrapped up in mm -hmm. the single way. <laughs> And I've come to think more than anything else is that that way has to be love. That is the only thing, as Viktor Frankl said, that will save humanity. It is the only thing. So interesting you should bring that up. I made a commitment uh, coming back from this trip. Um, that it was time for me to do my annual rereading of the two books I reread every year. Mm. Uh, Always We Begin Again and Living an Examined Life. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Always We Begin Again, which is a reinterpretation of the Rule of Benedict, 
says it on day two. Mm-hmm. I mean, day one is listen. <laughs> and day two is love. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's all, it, you're right. It's what's going to save us. Mm-hmm. Do we really love the earth? Not by our behaviors. Not by, by our behavior. We do mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So going back to the question, I would say that I believe um, less and less. Mm. I'm I'm preaching on the 4th of September at St. Paul's and I've already written the sermon because I just wanted to get it out of the way. And, you know, we're a lectionary church and the passage for that Sunday is Jesus says, you got to hate your mother and father and follow me. It's mm-hmm. a great passage. I, mm-hmm. I love that because it opens up the whole door of attachment and attachment yeah. theory, mm-hmm. which you're, you're going to talk some about that Sunday love that. and, and all of that. And Holly, what got me on the disbelieving it path was the church at the yeah. beginning in my childhood, when I was able to understand or read passages like the one that's coming up for September the 4th, and I would ask my parents and other people about these things, and they would say, I oh, don't pay attention to that. We don't believe in that. Yeah. And then yeah. they would get me to sing Jesus, that's all the little children of the world, black, yellow, brown, white, they're precious. And he sighed, and then I could see they didn't believe that. That's right. And then they had lived a segregated life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If you're not white, you can't come in this church. Or this house, or not through the front door, you know? I mean, that's... Well, yeah, that wasn't true in my case, mm. but mm. it was for a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that that blew it apart for me was the cognitive dis- dissonance of being entrusted to a black woman as a nanny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, the the ways that we love, if we allow it to, blows apart everything that we've ever thought to be true that we've that we've attached ourselves to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, and so, you know, you said a couple of minutes ago, this um, atheistic, so there's, which is atheistic, but that's the way we pronounce it. And to me, one day when you said it that way, I think in class, atheistic, it meant something totally different to me than atheist, right? And, and my interpretation, and I'd love to hear how you are thinking about it, that Atheistic means that I'm, I'm not a theist. I'm not having God be this kind of clockmaker in the sky who rules and um, decides and plays chess or dice with the universe and, um, and is arbitrary about one person's death, but saves another. Like it's, I, I'm, I'm not a theist at all. And yet going back to the James Webb Space Telescope, going back to the ways that we can reinterpret through other languages, poetry, et cetera, there is this deep, profound sense of mystery that, um, in which I'm grounded, that I'm still seeking, that I'm still curious about. And, and that's, that's, yeah, I mean, to, to be atheistic means, and for me, Bill, that has changed how I think about prayer. I would almost so, say that I, I just don't. <laughs> You know, um, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, I want it to is. To let, let me take what you just said about atheistic and, mm-hmm. and make it 
fit into my understanding of the Jesus myth. Mm-hmm. So there is in this field of energy or this field of energy we are in is um, something that I would label not just mysterious, but also graceful. Mm-hmm. And there have been at times in human history individuals who have been able to understand this at a level that has been transformative for them and they've been able to communicate that transformation to others mm-hmm. one of these is the character that shows up in history whose name we give jesus mm-hmm. or yeshua mm-hmm. and um clearly he had a message and a life and part of his message with his lifestyle mm-hmm. that transformed people. He started a movement. And before Rome got a hold of it in the fourth century, it transformed the lives of a lot of people. Um, and it, the people like Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan and to some extent Marcus Borg and uh, James Chilton and other scholars have given tons of energy into the Jesus of history, and I'm so grateful for them for that. I think they've they've helped us. But the real Jesus is the Jesus that existed in the hearts and minds of the people who experienced whatever that character did and said in such a way that their transformation led to the transformation for the people, and they told stories about him. And one of the stories that they told was that Jesus had an encounter with the sacred to the point where he was able to say to them, look, fellas and women, because women were a very big part of his ministry, but they got written out. I have come to this realization that I'm a child of God. And so are you. Mm-hmm. And we need to live that. And the people who got that message experienced the joy and the freedom of believing that mm-hmm. and, and, and embodying that. And I think that's, that's the most important part of the Jesus myth. Yeah, But you can find that in Hinduism, you can find it in Buddhism, you can find it in ancestor worship, you can Mm -hmm. find it in First Nations religion. I mean, think about um, braiding sweetgrass. Do you remember when we were caught up in that? And the whole thing of the Thanksgiving ritual and the love Mm -hmm. for everything that made it possible for us to be here. Mm -hmm. So. I can talk about it in terms of the Christian myth, but mm-hmm. it's not confined to that. That's exactly right. Um, it's almost like an evolutionary myth. You know, there's one of my favorite um, Kabbalistic myths is about the origin and the origins. Every myth, every every tradition has an origin story, right? <laughs> and um, the origin story in the Kabbalah is that there was um, a vessel of light that um, was intended to be perfect, but that vessel of light exploded and into millions of pieces and each shard 
kind of attached itself onto different matter. And the goal of matter is to do good work so that that vessel of light comes back together in some form. You know, the, the Big Bang was a tiny pinprick that exploded mm-hmm. into. Um, and so I, I just hear these stories as ways of trying to understand our evolutionary reality and how we relate to the cosmos at each turn is dependent on the tools we have to understand it Mm -hmm. and dependent on the mind we have to open up to it. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's the, the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, right? Is that, that Kairos time, if you will, that sort of Mm -hmm. allows us to descend into both at once. Mm -hmm. Um, So this Sunday, and I, I've wondered how long we're going to take to deal with this. Mm post-resurrection experiences of Jesus as mm-hmm. presented in, in John. Um, one phrase this Sunday that we're dealing with is the phrase where Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me. Yeah, And that gives us an opportunity to talk about attachment and attachment theory. Yeah, And um, I've asked you to carry the load this week. I'm just going to be along for the ride. <laughs> well- but We'll come back. I think we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, let everybody know that Holly and I are going to co-teach the first Sunday of every month, yeah. at least. Mm-hmm. And so. Well, you know, it's funny. It's like in that one single line. We have to take every word seriously, if you will. There's not like a whole lot of fluffy text in this story right and that one single line to me is the crux is what is the crux of the jesus myth the jesus story really maybe it's just reading that way for me this week but it's the don't cling to me you've got this transformation inside of you It has to carry forth. It is not me that this stops with. It is you and you and you and you and you and you. Right. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do believe that, that I do believe what you said, that every, every line in the story, even the words are full and it were, were, um, I think a lot of misspent energy has gone is saying, well, did this really happen? And, you know, was Jesus, was that a real body? Could he really walk through walls and could people really see him? And all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say one other thing, and we I hope we come back. I know we will come back to this as we go forward. But, you know, there are a lot of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus appears post-resurrection, nobody recognizes him. Mm-hmm. He's a stranger. That is also loaded. Yep. Meaning. Yeah. When you are transformed, you might not recognize yourself. Right. And other people might not recognize you either. That's right. Yeah. People get angry when you change, even, you know. 
what's the song? Don't change your hair for me. Don't change whatever's stay pretty butterfly stays a song from my I guess it's from my youth. I don't know it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you'll sing it Sunday. So, All right. <laughs> well anyway, it will be good to do this together yeah, this week. It'll be Looking fun. forward to it. There's yeah. so much here to do. There's so much here to do, and that's why we're still wrestling with this text. Um, to evoke my favorite image in the entire Bible, <laughs> wrestling with God. <laughs> so, were you gonna? I noticed you're gonna say something about that. So. Well, you know, only for like the 893rd time. <laughs> what can you in a minute say why you think that's your favorite story? You might say some a lot about my personality, um, more than it does about the sort of deeper meaning of the story, but it, it's again about a transformation. You know, um, Jacob encounters this angel as one thing and through the night will not let go of this struggle. And the angel is like, damn, can he let go already? And has to hurt him in the hip to get him to just like unclench, right? To let the angel go. Uh-huh. And, and if, at daybreak, same time Mary encounters the tomb, daybreak, he is transformed. Right. And, and, and yet he walks with a limp for the rest of his life to remember from whence he came. Right. And, you know? and, and the, the other pair, another, not the only one, another parallel in the story is what happens uh, to this resurrected Jesus figure is that he's wounded. That's right. He's wounded. He's not perfect. And that's the orb of light too. the orb of light from the, from the, um, from the Kabbalah does not come back together perfectly. It's cracked and it maybe has some, you know, the light might seep through in places. It remembers itself. And I think that, you know, Jacob's new name wasn't, and now you are perfect. His new name was. has a a line about that. The crack is where the light comes through. That's Rumi, right? Isn't that Rumi? So, yeah. So, but Jacob's name isn't now you are perfect. His name is he who wrestles with God. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I love that. I love that. All right. (laughs) Well, we've got, I think, as always, more to say than we have time to say it. But yeah. fortunately, yeah. we're both healthy and the future's open. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> have right. a great day. <laughs> you too. Love you. Okay, love you too. Bye-bye. Bye.